All right, y'all, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Has anybody ever heard of Ernest Shackleton? Who's heard of Ernest Shackleton? All right, excellent. Okay, so in 1914, there was this dude named Ernest Shackleton, and uh, he came up with the crazy idea of crossing Antarctica, the whole continent, on foot. (laughs) Uh, It's never been done before. And today, it's considered one of the greatest survival stories of all time. Nothing comes even close. If you've read um, Unbroken about Louis Zamperini, that's as close as you'll get, but it doesn't come close. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I remember reading Louis' life saying, can it get any worse? And then I turned the page, and it would always get worse for that guy. Um, I read Shackleton's story one summer uh, during a Texas heat wave when it was for several, several weeks. The temperatures were 100 plus. And I read in bed with a flashlight at night, and I did this for about a week till about two or three in the morning every night. And I had all the covers all wrapped over me, and it wasn't because of the AC, because my family is a bunch of whiners during the summer about the AC. They complain and complain and complain about where I set the, the marker of the AC, the temperature. So it's not because the AC was too low, right? Definitely not that. But it was you couldn't help but put yourself in these sub-zero, double-digit numbers of negative 40, negative 50, negative 30 degrees where these guys are trudging it out. Uh, Phenomenal, phenomenal story. It took 40 years to reduplicate what they did. 43, 1957 was the first time that people were even able to try to do what he did. And here's how they did it, though. This group did it with technological advances that Shackleton did not have. They had heated track vehicles. I mean, come on, Shackleton walked. And he floated on ice floes with the polar bears. They had reconnaissance planes to guide and supply them, flying over there, telling them where to go. All Shackleton had was a compass, and it didn't work most of the time. And their main goal was not, their main goal was trying to find food in a frozen world and not be the food of polar bears. In 1912, two years before Shackleton uh, did his epic adventure, the South Pole was reached for the first time, at least in the modern world that we know of. And it was by a guy named Robert F. Scott, a famous British explorer. Uh, But here's the deal. Scott and his three companions never made it back. They made it to the South Pole. Their goal wasn't to traverse the continent. Their goal was just to make it to the South Pole. And they never made it back. They got there, but they didn't come out. When they did find their frozen bodies, they found his diary. And here was the last entry in his diary from, from uh, Scott. Had we lived, I should, have ha- I should have a tale to tell of the hardihood, the endurance, and the courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes and our dead bodies, though, are the only thing that must tell the tale. Let's go back to Shackleton. Here's the kind of guy Shackleton was. So he knew this happened. He knew they didn't come back. This is two years before he left, but he was going. And here's the ad. He needed 27 for his crew. Here's the ad he put in the newspaper. Are you ready? Men wanted for harsh journey, small wages, bitter cold, safe return, doubtful. (laughs) 5,000 men applied. Five thousand men applied. That tells you something right there. I don't know what it does. You know, is it like the 
the AMC videos that as soon as you see in a teenager or a guy on the video goes, oh, he's going to do something stupid. Maybe it's that kind of thing. I don't know. But Shackleton's leadership qualities are the stuff of legend. I mean, he, if you are in, in any leadership capacity, you should read something about him. You should read the tale, period. But here's what they say about him. For scientific leadership, give me Scott, which is the guy that made it to the South Pole. For swift and efficient travel, Amundsen, who was a Norwegian uh, polar explorer, who many think got there actually before Scott did. But when you are in a hopeless situation, when there seems no way out, get on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Do you know that Shackleton and his crew never made it across Antarctica? They failed. They never did this epic goal of getting to that South Pole area and going across the whole continent. So what's the big deal about Shackleton? What's the big deal about this epic adventure of failure? Why are millions and millions of people inspired and read his story even to this day? Ever since 1914, across the world, here's the answer. He endured. He endured. The ship actually went down, and they miscalculated a little bit, and the ship got stuck in the ice. There was no way out for them. They were in the middle of nowhere to suffer nine months of winter in Antarctica at the pole. It was a death sentence. They only had one option, and that was to walk out. And so that's what they did. You know what's fascinating? What the name of their ship was that got them down there? Do you know what the name of the ship was? The endurance. There's something about enduring. There's something about enduring. There's something about a long walk home that's heroic. And so I want to welcome you to Revelation 7 because Revelation 7 is about enduring. Revelation 7 is about the long walk home. Revelation 7 is about the utmost of heroics. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. And you will be standing for a little bit, so if you get tired, you can sit down, and I promise I won't think less of you. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the sea, the earth, or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 
12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you fill us with your spirit, give clarity to our mind, realness to the heart. And Lord, would you turn us out to find ourselves in your word. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, y'all, here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to look at the need for endurance. Why do we need it? Second, we're going to look at what is the nature of endurance. In other words, what is endurance? And then lastly, we're going to look at the ability to endure. In other words, how do you endure? This is a very um, controversial passage, uh, so I want to give you a map at the beginning so you know where we're going because, um, well... If you've had any exposure to the book of Revelation, if you've grown up in the church, you know that what we're heading into is, okay, so what are we talking about, Israel? What are we talking about? So we're going to try to cut through a lot of that stuff, and I want to give you some textual terrain that you can hang on to, that you can follow. All right, so here's the need for endurance. Why do we need it? Well, the whole book of Revelation says you need it. (laughs) It starts out in chapter 1, verse 9. John says the endurance, he actually personifies the endurance. He gives it a definite article and he makes it like it's a person. It's so valuable and it's so needed and it's so essential to the message in the book of Revelation that he calls it the endurance. And he says that every Christian is in it. Every Christian must have it. Every Christian is in the endurance. Uh, All seven letters to the churches, which means they're to us. Chapters 1 through 3, or chapters 2 through 3, they include some form like this. This letter is written to you. This letter is given to you. The contents of this message is so that you endure, so that you overcome, so that you conquer, so that you endure. 
But we don't need the book of Revelation to tell us we need to endure. We know deep in our bones we need to endure. You know, you know the need to endure the powerful, self-sabotaging power of sin. You know, you feel deep in your bones the need to endure loneliness. The need to endure watching someone you love suffer without relief despite their prayers and despite your prayers. You know deep in your bones you need to endure the unkind, untrue things that are said about you by others. The abuse and the self-diminishment that others bring our way. You know deep in your bones the need to endure loss. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a career, the loss of something that you've poured so much sweat equity in, so much relational capital in, so much emotional work in, and then it's gone and you're done. Or you're given a plaque. Thanks for 50 years of service. You know deep in your bones you need to endure the pain of failure, that guilt that just won't go away that depression that keeps you in bed, you know you have a need to endure. The book of Revelation says life is an endurance. And you don't need anybody to tell you that. You know it is. You just want to know how. So what is endurance? I want you to look at the sixth point of the seal. We've got to go back in chapter 6 just a little bit. So we open the Bible a lot here, so if you need a Bible, there's one under your chair, and everyone's got those electronic devices. I'm sure there's plenty of good apps. Accordance has, well, you've got to pay for that one, so don't do that one. There's got to be something out there you don't have to pay for. Um, but chapter 6, verse 12 through 17, is the sixth seal. And the point of the sixth seal is a dark, disturbing question. It's the last three words at the end of verse 17. Do you see it? Who can stand? That's the whole point of the sixth seal. It's the whole point of all the seals, really. It's the whole point is, who can stand when there's no place left to stand? Who can stand when everything is collapsing all around you? Who can stand when the ground beneath your feet is no longer there? Who can stand when the sky starts rolling up like a scroll? Who can stand when the stars start falling from the sky? Do you see what's being said in 13? The stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. This is a picture of meteors and comets the size of Texas, the size of North America, the size of planets hitting the earth like rain. This is unimaginable ecological global destruction. But it's important to see that who can stand is asked not just in light of the sixth seal, but in light of one through five as well, particularly one through four. And one through four is the riding of the four horsemen. And the four horsemen are these dark powers called the sin and the death. And Paul gives them definite articles because he personifies them because they are dark lords of the world. You've got the sin, you've got the death, and you've got primal evil that are horsemen that come riding and ravaging through the earth. And so who can stand, takes into consideration those four horsemen that are riding right now, and the ultimate end of all things that happens at the end of all time, 
when ultimate, final, and full justice, when everything that we lament, all the evil and the suffering in the world, is finally made untrue. So what is endurance according to the seals? What is it? It's standing. It's standing when there's no place left to stand. And that's why it's impossible. It's so impossible that one writer says it this way. Enduring is breathing underwater. To endure is to learn to breathe underwater. It's learning to stand when there's no place left to stand. It's learning to endure when everything around you is upside down and inside out and there's no security and there's no stability. And yet, though, some do. Some people do endure. And so the question is, well, who are these folks? Who endures? What kind of people endure? I mean, is it the good people that endure? It's the people that have family values, the people that come from intact families, the people that don't have generational sins and illnesses and bad histories in their family. Are those the people that endure? I mean, honestly, if you were to read the newspaper or you were to talk to psychologists, a lot of them, psychiatrists, it's almost like they talk that way. Well, let me check your family history because your family history is going to determine what I do here. And I'm not talking to understand it, and I'm not talking to help. I'm talking determinism. Who endures? Strong people? Emotionally and relationally healthy people? Who endures? Gifted people? Wealthy people? Opportunistic people? The people that have the it factor? Strong people, happy people, blessed people, positive people. Who endures? Church people, people who obey God, people who pray a lot. Who endures? Well, I want you to look at who endures, because that question is asked at the end of verse 17, and the next sentence says, four angels do. Look at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing. So there it is. Who can stand? Well, there are four angels standing. Now, this is really cool, though, isn't it? But it doesn't help at all. Okay, four angels stand. Well, at least there are some creatures that stand. All right? That's pretty cool, but doesn't help. So let's keep going. Look at verse 9 now, chapter 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. Here it is, standing. Fantastic. Before the throne and before the Lamb. Okay, so these folks are in heaven. Still, that's cool. But how does it help me now? How does it help me when the four horsemen are riding right now? How does it help me when everything's culminating and building in a world that's hard and harsh and must be endured? Who are the folks that stand? Well, look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me and said to me, who are these clothed in white robes and from where they come from? Now, the elder, the elder represents like redeemed humanity. It's the perfect human. It's, it's your better self. And so the better self, the, the redeemed human is talking to the one who's not there yet. And he's saying to him, John, 
Who can stand? John, who are the ones that endure? Who stands when there's no place left to stand? And don't you love John's response? I mean, I love it. He's like, well, first of all, it's the same response Ezekiel had. Remember, Ezekiel's in the Valley of Dry Bones, and God goes up to him and says, oh, man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, you know. It's that, is this a trick question? I don't know how to answer it. And he answers the same way. Sir, you know, and watch how personal the guy is. Because he could have just gave him the answer, but instead, John says, and he said to me, it's almost like they're really, really close. They're conversing, really, they're looking at each other's eyes, and he says, John, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The ones that are standing are coming out of the world of horrors. The ones that are standing here are the ones that are standing when there's no place left to stand. The ones that are enduring are the ones that live with the four horsemen. So who can stand? Those who experience the seals. You know what this means? It means that it's possible to breathe underwater. If the ones that are standing are the ones that are experiencing the seals, the ones that are there when the earth is falling apart, the ones that are there when the sky rolls up, the ones that are there when, when meteors the size of Texas hit the earth like rain, the ones that are standing are the ones that are there. The ones that experience this. This is, this is the impossible becoming possible. This is the unimaginable becoming true. This is the greatest twist on, a, on an epic adventure that's gone wrong. Nine months in a winter cold. This is a long walk home and they actually make it. This means that you can endure the self-sabotaging power of sin in your life. This means you can endure loveless relationships. This means you can endure loneliness. This means you can endure unkind and untrue things being said about you. This means you can endure bad reports. It means you can endure watching someone you suffer without relief despite your prayers. You can endure that. This means you can endure all forms of loss in your life. This means the possibility to endure is now open. The ability to breathe underwater is real. And it also means that the sum of our horrors, the ultimate final and full justice at the end of all things, can be endured. How does that happen? How do we endure? This is our last question. And what, look at the, I mean, look at the picture here. It's unbelievable. We've got four an angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds on the earth. So you've got four, four, four. Four is a prime number in Revelation. It is a universality number. It's a number of totality. 
totality. It's a number of comprehensiveness, a number of completeness. So what you have is a picture here of four angels at the four corners of the world, meaning the entire known world. They're standing at the farthest reaches of it. Everything that's known about creation, they're at the corners and they're holding back (laughs) the four horsemen. Zechariah says the four horsemen are the four winds of the four horsemen, the sin, the death, primal evil. Most scholars, in fact, almost all of them say the four winds of the four horsemen. So why are the four horsemen being held back from invading the earth? What will the four angels tell us? Look at verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. This is unbelievable. That how we endure... And what Revelation wants to say, here's the power to endure. Here's the only reason you endure. You don't endure because you're a good person. You don't endure because you're a gifted person. You don't endure because you're a positive person or a happy person. You don't endure because you have good genes. You don't endure for any of those things. The reason why you endure is because of the grace of God. Because God has put some sort of divine seal on you. And whether you realize it or not, that's why you endure. You might think, gosh, I just woke up and the depression was gone, the grace of God. Or I woke up and it's still here, the grace of God. Or this relational conflict is conflicting and it's resolving And we're working it out, the grace of God. Or it's not the grace of God. The only reason that anyone endures is because of this seal, somehow called the grace of God. I don't mind telling you that the seal is incredibly controversial. There's plenty of print written on this. There's Oh, my word, there's endless stuff written on it. Is it some kind of brand? Is it some kind of mark like Cain's mark? Is it some kind of like signet ring of a king where he, in, he imprints it, embeds it into you, is emblazoned on you? Or is it a tattoo? Personally, I like the tattoo idea. And I like the fact that Jesus evidently has one on his thigh in Revelation 19. And then there's the whole point where Paul says the Holy Spirit is the seal. So what is the seal? And then when is the seal given? Did you notice when it's given? Revelation says, before the four horsemen ride throughout the earth. In other words, before the the dark powers of the sin, the death, and primal evil enter this world. In other words, before original sin, before Adam's sin, before any of these powers come into this world and ravage it and ride across it, before that happens, something happens before that happens. Something happens where there's a divine seal, some ancient grace that creeps in and seals you. Whatever the seal is and whatever it means, the ancient seal, because it's done on the forehead, it's referring back to the first century when slaves and servants were claimed by their masters and they would put a tattoo on their forehead that marked ownership. And I know modern people don't like the talk of being owned. But the book of Revelation says this to all of us. We're all owned by something. It's whether the master that owns you is good or not. 
But there's no such thing as not being owned. Everyone's owned. And so what this text is saying is that the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end, the one who sits on the throne at the center of all reality, he owns you. That his, his personal love is your mind, no matter what. That's the mark. It's perhaps what Paul was trying to get at in Ephesians 1. He was trying to put this into words when he says he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. It's some sort of ancient grace. It's some sort of when God thought of you, when he first conceived of you, whenever you popped into his mind and his heart, it's this kind of mark that says, I love her. I love him. No matter what. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure he gets home, whatever it takes. And the four angels are holding back the four horsemen because they're about ready to ride on the earth because it's going to take a lot. It's going to take someone going in to the world of the four horsemen. It's going to take someone going in to the dark powers of sin. It's going to take someone going in to death itself. It's going to take someone going in and facing primal evil. It's going to take someone going in and under and being enslaved and totally obliterated by these realities to bring you home. And what happens when we start realizing this, what happens when you start realizing that there's this ancient grace of a God who says he loves you no matter what, you're mine, and he's going to make sure that you get home no matter what it takes, what happens in the midst of whatever you're in, you start learning to breathe underwater. The security sets in even though you're not safe. I read it this morning, and I thought, gosh, it's so profound. I'm going to tell you all about it. In the psalm, there's this, be still and know that I am the Lord. Do you know what the context of that is? That be still is of a warrior, the verb, the language is of a warrior in the middle of a battle. What he's being told to do in the middle of arrows flying, in the middle of ducking spears, in the middle of ducking blows that would take your jugular, in the middle of hand-to-hand combat, what's being asked of this person is to lay down their arms and be still and know that I'm the commander of the battlefield. When you and I get the reality of this ancient grace of being loved and sealed, she's mine, period, no matter what. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get her home no matter what you're going through, you're going to start to learn to breathe underwater because you're going to be okay. You're going to make it home. I want you to listen to the last words that the elder, this perfect redeemed humanity, gives to John about those who endure. He says to him, you know, who are these people coming out? He says, sir, you know, and he tells them, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, John. 
These are the ones coming out of your place where you just came from. And then he says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now listen, therefore, he says, for this reason, because of the blood, because of the blood, therefore, they will stand before the throne. The blood leads you home. No one falls out. God puts his ancient mark of grace and says, she's mine, I love her, period, no matter what. And then no matter what shows up, it's going to take his own son to go into the world of the dark powers and shed his blood to take her home. And so it's, it's a quick trip from the cross to the throne and nobody falls out. There's nobody who does not endure. If you're at the cross, you go to the throne. If you're at the cross, you endure. If you're at the cross, you make it. If you're at the cross, you walk home. Period.